Listener Production. G'day, I'm agricultural scientist Chris Russell and welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land. Now, fires are often seen as random events that are fairly unpredictable and dangerous and they inspire terror in people when they occur. However, the science of how the fires behave is increasingly being studied in the hope of finding ways to better manage bushfires when they occur. Initially, fires start out small and in one area, but as we heard from former New South Wales Fire Commissioner Greg Mullins, they can spread at an alarming rate and become massive, all-consuming beasts that even create their own climate and storms. The 2020 fires have been devastating, but these extreme circumstances have greatly expanded our knowledge and understanding of how fire behaves. And understanding how fire behaves is fundamental to controlling them or preempting them. Dr. Thomas Duff is a forest scientist in the University of Melbourne, and he's focused on understanding fire behaviour and the way various species of native plants may vary through the aftermath of fires. Thomas worked in native forest management with a focus on fire and has also served as a professional forest firefighter. His return to studies now sees him working on a project which is focused on understanding and simulating the spread of bushfires as they occur in dry, hot landscapes like we've seen here in recent years. Welcome to Rebuilding Australia, Thomas. Thank you very much. Tom, what actually inspired you to do a PhD after you'd been a firefighter? Um, I suppose it begins before that. So I was always fascinated in sort of working in rural landscapes and I was always interested in science. So I studied forest science as my degree when I went to university because I wanted to have that sort of marriage of uh, something you can actually apply in the landscape, but also you've got that sort of problem where you get to think... And when I completed that, I worked in uh, forest and fire management. And I suppose doing that, I saw these sort of big questions that hadn't been answered that we sort of worked a lot trying to understand how to fight fires, but we still didn't have that complete understanding of what fires do under particular conditions and why. And so basically I was sort of, I was inspired to do a PhD to learn some of those things. So your research as a research fellow, what have you learnt about bushfires that we can apply and then uh, how, how was that borne out in the recent fires? So a lot of my research has been trying to understand that when you've got a particular set of conditions such as wind and, and temperature and uh, fuel moisture, trying to understand what a fire is likely to do. So it's about how fast the fire is going to move, how big the flames are going to be, how far it's likely to throw embers and so there's been models and research done like this for the last um, 60, 70 years in Australia. And when you look at what um, we've been predicting with that, it's actually borne out quite well with most fires. We can predict reasonably well on a windy day where a fire is going to go. But what's particularly challenging, and this is what's um, something that is going to be a big challenge for research into the future, is that we're working now with these exceptionally dry landscapes and so while our models might be able to predict a fire as it runs on a particular day, we don't really have a complete understanding of what a fire is going to do in these really dry landscapes when they're burning over weeks to months. And so that's partly what some of my research now is trying to understand. 
There's a particular challenge with this is that we can only study these extreme fire events when they happen. And up until now, they've been relatively rare, so it's quite difficult to collect enough information to say when you've got this situation, um, this next event is likely to happen. So what's been different? Why have these fires behaved differently or got so much greater and more ferocious than what anyone was expecting? Um, Well, I suppose in relation to that question, it, it sort of shows some of the new frontiers that we really need to work on to better understand fire. So a lot of the f- focus in the past has been a burning forest with the wind spreading the fire. What we've seen in a lot of these fires is what's commonly referred to as the, the fire making its own weather. So this is where you've got huge areas of landscape that are dry, that are ready to burn. You get lots of embers falling that ignite a very big area at the same time. That can create a sort of big column of rising air that in effect has a very similar pattern to a thunderstorm. And so what you're getting is the energy from the burning fire combines with energy from the atmosphere and that sort of makes this, uh, they call it a pyrocumulus event, but that means the fires can get, uh, they can move much more quickly, they can throw embers much further and they can be very, very unpredictable. And our models up until now don't really account for that sort of behaviour. So we know it happens when the atmosphere is in a particular configuration and when there's lots of area burning at the same time. But if we want to be able to understand how to manage some of these really big fires, we actually have to have a better understanding of what are going to be the triggers for that and what can we do about it to try and control that or account for that or make our people and firefighters safer. So that was what I was going to ask you. You know, Why has that happened this time? So it's quite a complex atmospheric process. So there's lots of research being done looking at atmospheric physics to try and understand what's driving this and what's causing it. When we look at the the broad information, it's fairly evident that you have to have the atmosphere in a a reasonably unstable condition. So the ability to form uh, rising columns of air, similar to a thunderstorm, But also combined with that, it's when you get very large areas burning at the same time that sort of provide that uplift for the fire. And one of the things that drives that is that when the landscape is exceptionally dry, then pretty much every ember that falls into unburnt fuel will start a new fire, and so you get very large areas burning at the same time. Some of the challenges we see with these pyrocumulus events is that you get this very erratic fire behaviour, but it can be quite extreme. So we can see incredibly strong winds. So in the Black Saturday fires in Victoria in 2009, there was evidence of the roofs being removed from houses by the winds generated by the, by this fire event. So before the fire had even arrived, the winds are lifting the roof material off the houses. That means that you can get embers in there and that would ignite the house. Along with that, so we um, in Canberra in 2003, we had a fire tornado and it looks like there's been uh, some of these occurring again with these fires. And also in with some of the fires, there's some evidence that there's been lightning being generated from the smoke plume that's been striking the ground and starting new fires. So when we get in these such extreme fire behaviours, it's it's a, it's a real challenge to try and understand well, what's driving them and, and well, how can we respond to either stop them or make ourselves safer. So there's been a lot of finger pointing and a lot of questioning about why these started you know, what was the condition that the real cause of these fires in the first place? What's your take about that? Um, with these fires, the 
If you want to look at the map of where the fires are, one thing that's quite telling is if you look at the map from the Bureau of Meteorology's rainfall deficit, and where it shows the rainfall deficit is very high, so we're much below average rainfall, where there's forest and the rainfall deficit, that's where we're getting the bad fires. And so I think the average that was reported last week is that we're about 40% below average rainfall for 2019. So we've got incredibly, incredibly dry landscapes. And so that means a huge proportion of the vegetation material, of the fuel that's in the forest, is available to be burnt if there's an ignition. And so we're very vulnerable to any fires that start. There's so much material burning, they're much more difficult to stop. Coupled with that is that we don't have our sort of natural wet barriers in the landscape because the landscape is so dry, so that it's very difficult to, to find places to stop fires burning. So in your view, are we, are we looking at the major cause being build-up of fuel load because of lack of hazard burning? Is it because we haven't cleared fire breaks? Is it climate change? Uh, you know, what is it that is, would, if you had to have one particular bet, what would you choose as being the biggest factor in having these fires? So for these particular fires, the biggest factor clearly is that we, we've got quite a lot of forest and it's, got, it's hugely dry. We're much, much drier than normal. Um, with, any, with any event, with any fire, there are a number of factors that influence what happens when it happens. So any fire, if you can stop them starting, you're not going to get any area burnt. Um, if you're looking to manage fuels in particular areas, strategic management of fuels can actually slow the behaviour of fires and make them more easier to control. But the big exception, the thing that's particularly unusual in these, this season's fires has been how dry the landscape has been. Okay, so there's nothing we can do about making it rain. What would you suggest we need to think about uh, in the way we tackle that? Um, well, I, th- I suppose it's one of the things that it, it's a particular challenge now, but it's also a clear particular challenge to the future that the climate models have suggested that they've been sort of saying for a fairly long amount of time that we we should be expecting these sort of severe dry events and more extreme fire-type weather. So the models have been saying that. And also if you look at the last 20 years, um, bad fire weather has been occurring more frequently. So one of the important things to do is we have to accept that this is the landscape that we've got to work in and it's like, well, what are the strategies we can then move forward to try and under- try and manage that? Like with anything, it's a quite a complex issue that there's many different strings to pull and many different changes that can be made. Um, these include... And working on preparedness, so this is basically detecting fires as quickly as qu- quickly as we can, because if firefighters can get to a fire when it's very small, it's easier to put out and stop it spreading. Um, so some of the recommendations about aircraft. So one of the advantages of aircraft is they're quite good at getting to a fire quickly and potentially controlling it. Fuel management can be can be a useful tool. Um, the way I s- sort of uses an example for fuel management. It's a bit like a seatbelt in a car, so it can actually slow things down. It can make it easier to get in there and make it safer for firefighters. But when the conditions are particularly extreme or when you're driving your car at 200 kilometres an hour, the seatbelt will still have an effect, but you're still going to have damaging fires. When you've got 100 kilometre hour winds, whatever fuel is there is going to burn. And as long as there's a forest there and the forest is growing, there's going to be some fuel that's likely to be able to carry a fire. So the management of fuel and the careful strategic management of fuel can um, be very, very helpful. There's lots of examples where fires have burnt into areas that have been recently burnt and slowed or stopped or firefighters have been able to, to get onto them. 
but also with some of these recent fires that this area has been reburnt after only being burnt a couple of years ago just because the conditions have been so extreme. So working with fuel management, it's it's a big challenge because it's about trying to understand what, what role can it play and then how can we balance that with uh, some of the other options we have as well. Some of the other options we could also look at is that, well, we could look at increasing the, the resilience of our assets that get threatened by fire. We could look at urban planning to make it um, our, our settlements more resistant for fire coming in. We could look at um, having better evacuations, better warnings. So there's, there's like a w- wide range of strategies that can be applied to, a fi- to, to fire management and sort of applying any, as, any in isolation, it's not going to get you that whole answer. It's about trying to find the best combination of all the different tools we have in managing fire and making decisions about what we what we're prepared to do what we're prepared to sacrifice in order to get to protect the values that we have what's the best way of putting a fire out once it has started you know there's so many we don't have parachuting in firefighters very often and we do things differently here fire bombing is the same of course but what is the most effective way of fighting these fires in these very dry conditions um so there's almost two answers to this question so a fire in grassland will move relatively quickly but the fuel is very fine and it burns very quickly. And once you've, if you use water to knock down the, the flames, you get this blackened edge and the fire can be stopped. When you get into a forest, there's a huge amount of material in there. There's logs, there's dead trees, there's tons of litter on the ground. And so using things like water is not very efficient. You've got so much fuel there that you can't just sort of spray water on it and put it out. So the broad way sort of used worldwide to put out uh, bushfires is to build control lines. So what they're doing, or what, what you do to build a control line is you get, generally it's heavy machinery like a bulldozer and they'll scrape away all the fuel on the ground so you get this, they call a mineral earth break. It's almost like a dirt track. Um, they can do it as wide as possible and basically you've got this break in the fuel that when the fire burns up to that, it'll stop spreading. And so the real challenge with fighting bushfires is to put in that control line right against the edge of the fire and to stop it spreading and sort of catch it so it can't get into any more fuel. And you can sort of understand that when the, the wind is blowing 100 kilometres an hour, there's not a lot you can do in front of a fire to stop it. So aircraft are quite good at, at, at putting out spot fires, good at protecting buildings, and you can use some retardant to put in temporary control lines. But to stop a fire spreading, you need to sort of have these... Um, barriers where the fuel is lacking to stop the fire burning into any new areas. The only other thing with that is that if you get enough rain, it's going to stop a bushfire as well. That There's a huge amount of fuel, so you need a fairly large amount of rain to put it out. A second challenge with the rain, that sort of it's not always the silver bullet as well, is that when, when a fire burns through an area, the soil becomes what they call hydrophobic, so the water will land on it and sort of slide off very quickly. So if you get a sudden dump of rain on a burnt fire ground, you can get this very sudden runoff, you can get flash floods, you can get bridges getting washed away, you can get sediment flows. So you can end up with these sort of secondary problems that rain on a fire ground can actually do quite a lot of damage to to things you care about. So we've been speaking to former fire commissioner, Greg Mullins, and I mean, he said to us that we just haven't seen the conditions or the fire types that we've seen this time. Uh, If we have, it's been on a very small scale compared to this. What are we like to see in the future and how are we going to mitigate against this sort of situation happening in the future? Um, and that's that's the big difficult question that we've got ahead of us, that it's it's quite difficult to know what the fire future is going to be. 
Um, one of the things, so one of the things that focus has been on has been on the climate and the dryness and the fire weather. So the models are predicting that fire weather is going to get more frequent. And so we can expect to have conditions that drive these fires more often. But the other side of the coin is that when we have fire, it burns vegetation. The vegetation is the fuel. And that also responds to climate and it responds to the amount of rain. It also responds to being burnt. So some parts of the landscape have been burnt and a few years later they've been burnt again. And so at the moment, we don't quite understand how the fuel side of the equation is going to change into the future. Some sort of fairly extreme examples are, so from Victoria, we've got the very tall, they, they, they call them the tall mist forests. So these are tall forests consisting of eucalyptus regnans. There's these beautiful forests with lots of ferns underneath. Eucalypts will grow very tall. They grow to about sort of 90 to 100 metres. A fire will go through, kill the majority of the trees, and they'll drop seed. And that's what replenishes the next generation. It'll all grow back from seed. But the problem you can have is that if that area is burnt again before the new trees have had time to grow more seed, so they're basically juveniles, they're not adults, then you can actually wipe out that, those trees from the landscape. So in Victoria, we had areas burnt in 2003. We had them burnt again in 2007. So that was shorter than the interval they need to be able to persist. Some of those areas were burnt again in 2014, and it looks like they've been burnt again this year. And so that sort of fire regime means that these types of um, vegetation types, forest types, won't be able to persist in the landscape in the long term. So if that gets replaced by something else, whatever it replaces is going to burn differently and there's going to be a, a difference in the fire regime uh, because of that. So given that this is fire has been different and more ferocious and, and a whole new experience for us, what research will you be looking to do to see what we can do in the future to, to stop this happening again? Um, I think that's a, a really good question because one of the things that we have with these exceptional fires is that we realise how much we don't actually know and how much more there is to learn. I mentioned earlier that a lot of our knowledge about fires and fire behaviour has been quite well developed. We've been looking at it for many years, but a lot of that work has come from experimental work where they'll light fires in a particular set of conditions, watch the fires run and sort of write down what happens. But we can't do extreme fires experimentally. You can't go and light a, a bushfire that does pyrocumulus and starts doing lightning strikes. So all we can do to know these fires better is actually study the ones that happen. And so with these fires, basically it's a challenge to us to try and get as much information out as possible so that we can learn as many aspects as we can to, to make things better the next time. And I suppose when we, when we think about fire behaviour, we think about what the fire is doing, but there are many other things we can also look at, such as how well our evacuation procedures worked, how well we look after people and their pets, how well agricultural systems recover, what sort of systems we need in place to help people get their fencing back up and get feed to their stock. Basically, when you've got a fire, it's a sort of a wide community impact. And so trying to understand what the impact was, what caused it, and what we can do about it to make it um, less impactful next time is, is really the big challenge that we're going to have with these fires. So in your research, Tom, what have you seen about how forests regenerate and what can we learn from that that's going to be different this time? So Australian forests in general are very resilient to fire. In most places where you've got eucalypts, many of the species have adaptations to recover uh, and they recover really well. 
So in many parts of the country, the species are made to burn. They're quite happy to come back. The animals have strategies for surviving fire. They can either flee or they can uh, take refuge in in, in uh, burrows or in logs. And so very broadly, Australian forests are quite happy to be burnt and they recover quite well. Where you start to have problems is where the fire becomes outside the natural constraints they've evolved to survive with. So each species has particular tolerance of fire that it can survive, and if you get outside those tolerances, then those species can be damaged or they, they, they can be lost from an area. And so in general, Australia, Australian forests are quite happy to burn. It's just when they're burnt under exceptional conditions. So with these fires that have just happened, we're seeing areas that are burning um, very hot over very large areas. So that will disadvantage species that move away from the fire to flee the burning area and then come back after the fire. If the area that burns is huge, then basically there's a long distance to come back or they may be pushed away from habitat and may not be able to survive. The other side is if the fires are becoming too frequent. The trees don't have time to, to regenerate properly and so they can be lost from a site. So it's quite difficult to sort of pinpoint what, what the outcome of these fires will be, but it looks like there's going to be um, some challenges for many of the species because they're being pushed beyond their natural limits that they're used to surviving with, in relation to fire. Any way we can make these forests a bit more in sympathy with the surrounding grazing and farming enterprises that happen as they regenerate? So with these fires, there's probably going to be some big questions that we'll have to ask ourselves and some of those may be that these areas that are sensitive to fire that have been burnt multiple times, for them to grow back, it may require human intervention to do that. And so that begs some questions about, well, what should this forest be coming back to? Should we try and keep it at the state it was before it was burnt or 50 years ago? Or should we say that we're in a new state of systems now and we'll actually need to reseed this with different species so that we're in a, we have a system that's more resilient to fire? So also when you're looking at agricultural systems, there's always some challenges with looking at things such as um, prescribed burning, that it can be a way to reduce fire risk into the future, but you can also run up with some issues uh, such as with vineyards where you may affect some wine vintages when there's a lot of smoke in the air. One of the challenges with, with fire management is that anything we want to do or want to achieve, there's going to be trade-offs. So we want to get, have one particular outcome, we're probably going to have some costs at the other end and we need to decide what we're prepared to keep and what we're, what we're prepared to give up. Tom, I think your research is going to be some of the most uh, focused and interesting research that is critical for our future, both in agriculture and in our environment. So thank you very much for being our AgriMinder today. Thank you. We've heard that the Australian landscape has historically adapted well to be able to survive and indeed thrive in an environment that encompasses bushfires. But extreme fires like we've seen in 2020 are too hot and devastating for most species to adapt to. And that can result in significant damage to our vegetative balance. Clearly, the outcome of these fires is new territory for both the natural world and our scientific world, as Dr Duff has suggested. But this comes with an opportunity for further understanding how fires behave, which is fundamental to controlling them or indeed preempting them. But there is also no doubt that we will need human intervention and collaboration to help that recovery. 
Join me next time on Rebuilding Australia when we talk to soil scientist Philip Mulvey and discuss the history of backburning in Australia and the effects this has had on our soil. If after listening to this episode, you would like to offer some of your help in our efforts to rebuild Australia, the greatest ongoing need amongst wildlife rescue groups at the moment is for new volunteers. And as so much habitat has been destroyed by the fires, they're also looking for people to offer up release sites on private land for rehabilitated wildlife. So contact the New South Wales groups that need volunteers, which include WIRES, Wildlife Rescue South Coast, Animal Rescue Collective, Four Australian Wildlife Needing Aid, also known as Fauna, and Sydney Wildlife. Visit their websites if you'd like to find out more. Rebuilding Australia, Our Animals and Land was presented by Chris Russell, produced by Jennifer Goggin, edited by Lindsay Green, with sound production by Matt Nikolic. Listener.